Well, welcome to our audience. Uh, my name is Drew Pearce and I'm a partner here at Herbert Smith Freehills in the Employment, Industrial Relations and Safety Practice. Um, and today we're here to talk about hybrid working in 2022 and beyond. Uh, before I introduce my fellow panellists, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm located today, and pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of and custodians of the lands on which each of you are joining us from uh, today, including our uh, fellow panellists, Anna and John. Um, so without further ado, I'll introduce you to uh, Dr. John Hopkins. Uh, he is an innovation fellow at Swinburne Business School, the founder of Workflex, uh, who offer a range of online courses, consulting and research services to help the newly remote workforce and organisations success, successfully transition um, to a new way of working. Um, Dr Hopkins is a self-described veteran of this field, um, something that I think many of us might feel like, but I can assure you that John's got uh, both the experience and the uh, academic credentials behind him to really help us understand uh, how to navigate this new world. Um, he's recently released a, a report commissioned by the Fair Work Commission on Hybrid Working. Um, and of course, I'm joined by Anna Cregan from our Perth office who leads our uh, Perth Employment, Industrial Relations and Safety Practice. Welcome, Anna. Welcome, John. To be here. Um, a little bit of housekeeping as always. Uh, the uh, platform that we're on today, GoToWebinar, has a function where you can add questions. So if questions come up throughout the, uh, the discussion, please feel free to feed them through and we'll come come around to those at, at the end. Um, I think without a doubt the COVID-19 pandemic continues to be a once in a lifetime um, opportunity to reimagine the way that we work, um, certainly giving us plenty of opportunities to <laughs> stop and consider what's facing us on any given day. Um, the emergence of Omicron has obviously hit Australia in the last um, four or five days as in we're seeing rapid shifts in um, the government's response and no doubt that will soon also um, start factoring into decisions that employers are working. I know just a week ago we were all looking forward to the potential that 2022 might get off to a different start to uh, what 2021 did um, and we're still hopeful for that but also kind of preparing for what might lay ahead. Um, when we think about hybrid working, it's something that we we're all um, kind of looking to work back to as the pandemic kind of began to ease in 2020. Um, it's certainly a pull factor for prospective employees as we look at the flexibilities that modern ways of working um, can provide to them. And our recent Future of Work survey brought up some interesting statistics. Um, and one of them was that 86% of survey respondents um, believe that remote working had benefited um, their talent strategies. And I think that that's a, you know, a really important um, issue, particularly as we face the, the great resignation um, that we're expecting to um, see roll through. It's also integral to the retention of talent um, as we progress into this next phase. Um, we all know that, particularly in Australia, we've been kind of uh, closed in for the best part of two years now, and there will be talent that is looking to uh, move around um, the world as we once did. Um, 
maybe throwing to you, John, to, to kick, kick us off. Your recent report identified that COVID-19 um, has spawned five distinct kind of work from home arrangements. Can you talk us through, just in a snapshot, what that what they are and what they look like? Yeah, sure, Joe. Uh, I mean, obviously, we read a lot and see a lot about hybrid work. It's definitely one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or so. But what we don't see a lot of is what does hybrid work actually looks like? We know it's a mixture of people coming to the office for a portion of the week and people working from home or working from a third place uh, for the rest of the week. But, but how do you manage that? How do you structure that? What does that actually look like in reality? And um, at the start of this year, myself and my colleague, Anne, we started a series of interviews with senior business leaders around Australia to ask them how they're going to do it. So, um, so that, that's the research that we've been involved in. And from that, we've identified five popular, the five most popular arrangements. And first of all is, is the traditional return to office. So we did speak to one company who, you know, they couldn't wait for the pandemic to, to close, uh, to, to finish soon enough so they could all get back to the way things were in 2019. So, and that, so there are definitely companies around like that. Uh, we did also speak to one large healthcare company and they uh, really benefited from the uh, added talent that they've been able to attract during COVID and they decided that they were going to go fully remote. So they they'd had that traditional model in the past where everybody came to the office five days a week, nine to five, and they'd, uh, they'd made this radical change that going forward they were going to be a remote only business. But the vast majority of the companies we spoke to fell in the middle of that so and and that's where hybrid is so those two can't really be considered as hybrid full-time back in the office or full-time uh, working remotely but those models of hybrid that we saw first of all there were the uh, the fixed days and set days so for instance there may be a mandate or a requirement for an individual or a team to come in on particular set days so let's say you know the finance department might have to come in on uh, mondays wednesdays and fridays every week so that was the kind of model three, if you like, or the first uh, hybrid model we we, uh, we recognised. The second one was um, uh, like a, a kind of a twist on that one, if you like. So it was still a set number of days in the office, but this time the employee chose what days they were. So it might be, say, three days or two days a week in the office or five days a fortnight or whatever it might be. But then it was up to the individual to choose which two days or three days that they actually came in. And then the, the fifth model was uh, was really the most flexible of all, and that was no set limits and employees can come into the office when they want, work from the office when they want, or if they prefer to work from home, if that works better for them at particular times, they can do that. So they were the, they were the main five models. We did see some variations on those. So for instance, rather than having a set number of days, like three days a week, we saw maximums and minimums, so uh, you know, maximum of three days a week or minimum of three days a week, so so employees can come in for more or less if they wish. And also we saw variations on those set days as well, where let's say um, there may be a requirement for an employee or team to come in three days a week. One of those days is set, so one of those days is a Monday, but then they can choose what the other two days are. And Anna, that obviously raises a whole range of employment considerations. Um, what are the, I guess, the key legal issues that you're seeing with clients in this space? 
Well, you're right, Drew. It raises a lot of different issues, many of which we've seen during the move to remote work arrangements that happened en masse during COVID. So all of those issues remain. Um, how do you measure productivity? How do you supervise people? How do you ensure that people are working a, a set number of hours or how do you manage their working hours and ensure their safety? How do you monitor and manage their mental health and well-being? How do you make sure people are happy and connected? In a more granular way, if people are doing um, a, a hybrid of work in the office and work elsewhere, does that trigger a variety in the entitlements that they have or a variety of entitlements? And how do you track those, particularly if when they're working remotely, they're working somewhere outside the jurisdiction or um, elsewhere than in, in the jurisdiction that they are in? We've, we've encountered a number of different issues involving, for example, some people working in different jurisdictions um, for a company in another state or territory where they might um, they might have different entitlements to things like long service leave and all of that needs to be contended with. But all of these things remain new and it's clear aren't going away in the context of a return to work which has seen these hybrid models uh, continuing. Yeah, and I think one of the things I've noticed is there are so many specific entitlements or obligations that arise out of the different states and territories in Australia. We haven't really seen the issues like long service leave, workers' compensation, insurance and the like coming through in the way that you'll read in the papers about um, organisations looking at tax arrangements for employees to work in different countries, but it's very much still an issue within this federation of states that that we, uh, we have in Australia. Um, John, maybe coming back to you, one of the issues we found um, coming through our Future of Work report was this growing sense that the ability to work remotely um, in a hybrid uh, version or kind of fully remotely is kind of beginning to emerge into something that employees see as a, a right as opposed to uh, kind of a benefit. Is that something that you've seen in your research? Oh yeah, look, uh, for sure. There's there's definitely a gap between employee expectation and employee what what employers are, are willing to give. And you know, just on the back of, of what Anna said, you know, she she listed a, a whole lot of um, constraints or challenges. Uh, one thing I would say is th these aren't new. So these have been around as long as I've been researching this field. It's just that. While that more and more people are doing it, it's become more and more uh, of a talking point. So look, these these challenges have always been there. Um, but look, I, I think in terms of you know recruiting across borders and stuff like that is um, is always going to be a challenge. And and when you talk about pensions and you talk about all kinds of different conditions that people in different countries might have, that that, that is nothing new. So that has definitely been a, a talking point for a long time. Well, look, just in, in terms of, you know, in, in terms of it being becoming an expectation, what I think is um, what workplace flexibility has changed dramatically in the last two years. So, uh, you know, our own research has shown that only around 20 percent of, um, of knowledge workers actually really had any real type of flexibility that allowed them to work from home. On a, on a consistent basis anyway. So from, for, so for the vast majority of knowledge workers, workplace flexibility was nothing more than the ability to, to come in a little bit late if you had a doctor's appointment or you had to you know, take one of the kids to the dentist or something like that. Despite what policies might have said, in practice, there was very, very little uh, flexibility. So what happened was 
people had to start working from home due to a pandemic. It wasn't a strategic decision. It happened. Okay, it was a business continuity decision. It was all that could, that all that could do. And all the, you know, the vast majority of people didn't have any training in this. They probably didn't have the right equipment. But they've been doing it for 18 months now. So what's happened is we form habits uh, uh, and routines uh, a lot in a lot shorter period than that. You know, six to 12 weeks is we kind of, you know, we can shake a habit or gain a new habit. So people are very much kind of set in this way. So they they, they don't want to kind of give it up. So look, I think there's a there's definitely resistance. And um, but look, I would say from our own research. There's also definitely a real um, willingness or want to return to the office from the majority of people as well. They just don't want to go back for 40 hours a week. Yeah. And Anna, in the context of you know people's roles, and as, as John pointed out, I think when when most of us headed home, certainly in in Sydney and Melbourne, it was kind of an overnight decision. Everybody was doing it. Um, and so everyone was working remotely. There is this tension with, um, you know, I, you know, the majority of people do seem to want to be back in the office at some stage, but there are some that don't want to. Um, how do you think the kind of definition of a person's role plays into this uh, from, a, from a legal perspective? Well, that's a big part of it, obviously. Uh, employers, um, employees, as a starting point, don't have a general right to work from home. There's no recognition of that in law. Uh, it's really uh, to the employer to define what a role is, to define what the requirements of the role is, and to be clear with employees from the outset about what's required of them. That, that might include, if they consider it to be the case, that the role is one that needs to be performed from an office or from a workshop or some other workplace. And the employers have all the usual contractual tools or, or, that they have always had at their disposal to confirm that the employment contract policies, directions that can be issued, Obviously, if they've already issued a direction telling for a statement or a contractual term, telling people they can work from home in a policy or otherwise, then there might be some work in um, unwinding that. But that's the starting point. There's no general right to work from home and defining clearly a role and what's required of it is a very important part of clarifying to employees what's expected of them. I think, though, you're right that that is the starting point. The secondary point, which most employers have moved on to now, is putting aside your contractual rights and your ability to define your role, what do you need to do in this job market, in this war for talent to attract people? And as John said, a huge part of attracting people at the moment at least is allowing some flexibility in the way that people work. So it does seem to us that most employers are considering how they can offer that and how they can best allow for that in their businesses to make sure that they're attra attracting and retaining the human capital that they need to work well in, in this environment that we're in. John, that's probably a good time to bring up the, the great resignation. Um, and what are you seeing that employers can be pulling from, you know, this experience that we've had over the last 18 months of um, working remotely and kind of the various uh, ramp up and ramp downs of lockdowns and the learnings from, from that kind of hybrid model that could be really used as a pull factor to get talent into the organisation as opposed to losing it? Yeah, look, I think the Great Resignation is a fascinating topic, and I think there's a lot of reasons behind it. And um, I'm not sure 
necessarily hybrid working is, is a solution or would stop people you know running away and, uh, and and living in the desert for a few months or whatever it is that they want to do uh, but what i would say is i'd say workplace flexibility more generally makes uh, an employer an employer more attractive it's something we always wanted before covid anyway but the, but only the minority of us actually got it then all of a sudden we've we've tasted this kind of work from home lifestyle which was not really flexible we didn't have any choice about it we, we had to do it and it was and we were in the middle of a pandemic so we couldn't you know we couldn't even uh, go out and sit in a cafe and have a breakfast or anything like that but at the same time we, a lot of people have obviously recognized that one that they can do a, a large chunk of their job from outside the office anyway so it's become a realization of that but i think look i think some examples that I can give you of which um, you know which I think have worked for people that I know is sometimes I don't know how long the the, the great resignation is going to last is it going to be a long-term thing I would imagine at some stage people are going to have to get back into some sort of employment and um, and, and you know start um, earning, earning again but I would say being in a, a flexible employer being maybe even allowing people to have um, you know uh, a couple of months uh, um, paid absence or unpaid absence or whatever it is or paid leave i know at the moment i've got a couple of colleagues and friends but one who's um, recently had her first grandchild she's in london at the moment she took some leave off but rather than flying straight back she's working part-time for an australian employer in london so they've been able to uh, facilitate that similarly uh, a friend who's in germany and he's been working over there for the last couple of months again for an australian company he's just actually located in Germany at the moment it's it's tricky for things like meetings and stuff like that but you know if anybody who works for a global organization you know that we're um we're kind of used to those things anyway but look i would say in terms of talent and attracting talent and keeping talent keeping you know these 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 are, the, are our best assets being flexible and being accommodating of their needs and the things that they want to do because this might not be a long-term thing anyway yeah and uh, interesting that you raise um, people working in other other countries, John. One of the you know, the Fair Work Act, which applies to most um, employees in the country, has extraterritorial jurisdiction. So, to a to an extent, the the basic safety nets and things stay the same. But and one issue that I always um, think about when you're going into these um, flexible arrangements with the best of intentions, and usually with a really good employee that um, you know everyone's aligned but things can go bad and one thing that happens after employees decide to move on is restraints and trying to enforce those to protect the business what do, what kind of issues do you see arising in that space well you're right Drew as you mentioned um, our system of international and even Australian laws isn't really fit for purpose when you're in a world where employees are moving around or can move around between countries between states within Australia, um, in the same vein, our, the way that we've traditionally drafted and dealt with post-employment restraints needed to be reconsidered. Uh, until now, or until recent years, there have been a strong focus on what um, competitive risk the individual would pose to their former employer in, in a particular jurisdiction. So where could they do work that would that would pose a risk to their former employer's business and how could you sensibly and lawfully restrain that? It's now clear that the geography of that restraint is less relevant 
it's less important where the employee is working. What is important is what they're doing, what um, clients or customers of the business they have contact with, the kind of work they're doing, whether it is truly competitive. And we're seeing our non-compete restraints less closely linked to geography and more, much more closely linked to the actual work the individual is doing and the competitive risk that they pose. So it, it is definitely the case that some rethinking of post-employment restraints is required, particularly if you're talking about executives or people um, in roles that do pose a particular competitive risk to employers if they do move on. Yeah, and interestingly, a, a comments just popped up and it was something that I wanted to, to cover with John. One of um, the statistics we've seen is that people, Australians are working on average an extra hour and a half um, per week in unpaid overtime. And obviously, I think, peak pandemic when we were locked down at home, there was a real blurring of the lines between work and non-work. Um, how do you think work-life balance, and I struggle using that term, but how, how do you think that kind of equilibrium of the working life and the, the non-working life um, comes into play here? Oh yeah, look, look first I, I have to agree with what Anna just said and about the fit for purpose and in terms of policy and I think what what happened was I think maybe even one of the barriers to workplace flexibility before was this was this policy uh, making uh, the correct arrangements to facilitate it it's not easy but but of course what happened when the pandemic came along people had to go a lot of organizations we spoke to they didn't even have have a policy for working from home but people had to do it from a business continuity perspective so it's almost like policy has to catch up with practices. The horse has already bolted. So let's try and do what we can to make what we're already doing legal because you know it's important. Um, so yeah, look, I think it's important to to do that. And uh, yeah, look, I did see that article about the um, the one and a half hours extra unpaid work per person. The only thing that really surprised me about that was I thought that was a really low number. I thought it would have been a lot higher than that. And and I would say there's been a real pendulum swing towards the employer for, for many years. I think uh, technology is a big part of that. And I, I was asked about this um, not too long ago as part of another interview. And um, I would say I, I can almost pinpoint the moment that it happened for me personally. And it was, I think it was about 2009. It was the first time I got my uh, first iPhone. Okay, so Steve Jobs was, was to blame as far as I'm concerned, because up to that point, uh, I had to go and get my laptop and plug it in and open it up before before work would communicate with me. Okay, yes. but then as soon as I got my first iPhone and um, you know and I was starting to receive emails, it was almost like you didn't have that hard stop on a Friday at five o'clock anymore. It started eating into the evening, it started eating into the weekends, and it started eating into holidays. So and for many of us on a vast scale. So I would say that long before the pandemic, we were there was already this pendulum swing towards an expectation of this being extra work that we do, which is which is on page. Now, of course, what happened during the pandemic, we started working from home. And similar to what I said before, most people had no experience of doing this before, and it's not easy. And it, especially when you've maybe got homeschooling, your partners at home or your flatmates or whoever, you know, you're in this crowded space. Um, and with lots of other um, pressures and lots of other challenges, 
And, um, and of course, what was happening is, you know, we were saving this time from not commuting, but then people were just working those extra hours and not investing it in themselves. So from a, from a work-life balance, um, it's very important to establish structure when working from home. So have hard start times, have hard, hard finish times, and stick with them, set an alarm, whatever it might be. Your Outlook calendar will be your best friend. Also, schedule breaks in there. It's very important. Even quick five-minute micro break for a shakeout, and a, you know, looking away from the screen for five minutes. These things are, are super important. And even you know, rituals in terms of now that our commute has gone, we don't have that mental kind of shift from we're leaving the house, we're closing the door behind, right? We're switched on for work. You can still mimic those and maybe do that and go for a coffee. So you leave the house go out buy a coffee when you come back you put the key in in the same door but this time it, it's work time just those little rituals even getting dressed for work and stuff like that um, can work as well look i'd say in terms of unpaid uh, hours that was a that was a thing long before covid and i think like for many things it's just been a, a huge catalyst for it and i think adam one of the things we've we've seen over the last couple of years is a very active regulator in the form of the Fair Work Ombudsman, looking at payroll compliance issues. We've seen wage theft um, laws pass through a number of the states. Um, now, what kind of options do employers have in this space, particularly with employees that are covered by awards where there are record keeping obligations and the like? Well, yeah, it, it can present a conundrum, this um, concept of hybrid working when you do have employees who are who are award covered. Um, obviously, awards create a, a slightly antiquated system where you've got a very prescriptive array of entitlements which are triggered depending on the exact hours that are worked, the spread of those hours, the hours between which those hours are worked, whether you have particular breaks. And all of that can be hard to get right and to apply in a compliant, lawful way if you have employees who are working elsewhere where they can't be closely supervised or monitored. So, um, and you're right, Drew, that if you get that wrong, there's, um, you can expect a degree of scrutiny from a, a, an active regulator in the Fair Work Ombudsman. So employers are needing to assess just how they manage that in the context of hybrid work. Can they do it through self-reporting? Can they require um, award-covered employees and others to self-report on their hours of work? Can they use contracts and directions and similar to say you must work between these hours um, and you must have breaks at these times to make sure that, that generally um, a compliant spread of work is being worked? And, and requiring employees if they're to do something different to request permission to do that. They're the sorts of things we're seeing employers look at. But obviously a lot of that runs counter to productivity gains and changes in the way of working that have evolved over the past decades, which have seen a move away from those prescriptive um, set hours, set patterns of work, and a move towards more fluid working arrangements, all directed at, at making um, in, improvements in productivity. Uh, but that is something we're seeing employers work through at the moment. That's award-covered employees, obviously. For enterprise agreement-covered employees, there might be some slightly greater flexibilities. Typically, you wouldn't see quite the same prescription in terms. You'd see a bit more flexibility generally in the way their payment terms and their working hours are applied. Um, and then another category of employees are people who are not award-covered and who are not enterprise agreement-covered, people who are in sometimes in very senior roles. There are still 
compliance issues for those individuals. It might not be a Fair Work Ombudsman compliance issue. It might not be in the form of an underpayment claim that you're, you need to be concerned about or, or a strict um, wages and, um, and record keeping compliance issue. But the real issue that comes up for those sorts of people are issues around safety and mental health. And in the same way that we've got an activated regulator in the Fair Work Ombudsman looking at um, working hours and looking at the way people are paid, we have activated regulators in the safety space who are looking at mental health and mental health in particular connected with the pressures of homework arrangements, the, pre the this new concept of whether there should be a right to disconnect and who are expecting employers to have an understanding of the mental health risks that present in these circumstances and a plan for managing them. And John, you mentioned the when we first spoke um, that employers need to find that secret source for their hybrid working policy to really get things um, get things going. What are some of the factors that you think need to feed into identifying that special source, which I'm sure is going to be very different um, from organisation to organisation? Yeah, look, I would I would go beyond that. I think it's not just every organisation to organisation. I think it's every team within an organisation is going to be different. So you can't necessarily. What I have seen is in terms of high level policies to apply to everyone in the business tend to not work. If there's a real um, variation between the types of roles within that organisation, which which many organisations do. Uh, so, uh, so it tends to be guidelines tend to work better. That can then be adjusted at team level. And I'd say throughout the pandemic, the, 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 the level that has changed the most in terms of responsibility is that middle manager, supervisor, team leader. You know, we've all been impacted, but their jobs in particular, because all of a sudden they've inherited all these other um, responsibilities that they didn't have before and in terms of mental health and online culture and things like that. But they still have to do all the things they needed to do anyway. So their, their jobs have, have really, really increased. But look, I'd say in terms of what needs to be done or what the ingredients are in that secret sauce, and again, it's, it's going to be a different recipe for, for every team, but it's based around what you actually do. So what are the what are the typical factors or typical activities that happen within that business unit? Um, obviously, everything within an organisation is still aligned. It's still aligned with the same mission and same vision, and still producing the same products or you know or services or whatever you did beforehand. That that probably hasn't changed. It's just it's just the engine that's changed. And and you know our customers they couldn't care whether or not our, you know our suppliers employees are working from home or working from the office as long as they're still getting their their products or services. So it's really an operational thing. So it's around, well, what is that operation? What do you actually do? Break that down into what those things are. Have a think about what things actually work well in the office and what things actually work well at home or remotely and accommodate that. So build the, the, the structure and the week around that. And I'd say, you know, having a, having a really good brainstorming session, obviously in, involving the employees, they're the most important component in that because they've, they've been living it over the last 18 months. So having their input and, and what their new requirements are. You know, we've spoken how much things have changed and uh, expectations probably are higher. That, that pendulum I, I spoke about before has definitely swung hard and fast towards the employee. Uh, so they're, they're probably going to have more choice than they had before. So, yeah, so definitely involving all that. And I would say that probably the most important thing is don't necessarily think that you're going to perfect it first time. So um, map it out, try it out, pilot it. 
reflect, look what worked, what didn't work, and, and, and then try and improve on that. And it, I quite often say to my students, you know, there's only so much you can learn about how to swim from a textbook. At some stage, you know, you've got to kind of jump in the pool and wave your arms and legs around. And, and it's a bit like that with hybrid. You know, you could probably, you could probably plan it for six months and, uh, and not get it any better than if you planned it for two weeks and jumped in and tried it out. Yeah. And um, we've had a, a question come through about the Great Resignation um, and really a query around is is kind of workplace flexibility creating a bit of a, a divide between kind of knowledge um, employees and um, frontline workers, people who, you know, need to physically be in a particular location to perform their role, or is is the great resignation something that hits everyone? Yeah, look, uh, look I'm happy to take that question. Um, I've been involved in a large project with a uh, large state transport authority, and um, that, that was certainly one of the, uh, something that we thought, one of the concerns we had, something that we thought might happen. We also spoke with a, a mining company. And in those particular instances, what we heard was, we never saw each other anyway. So <laughs> it, uh, it, so if you're if you're working for a mining company and you have an operations job and you're working you know, down the mine, or if you're you know working for a transport authority and you're driving a train, those people never saw the people in the office anyway. They probably never see them throughout their whole career. So, so in those particular op occupations, no, it wasn't a, a problem. But where we did see it was a problem was actually in a large distribution center where the vast majority of staff were operations, frontline staff, and they were working in the warehouse and they were picking and packing and driving forklifts, forklifts and things like that. And they had a small uh, group of staff who were based in that office. And that became a bit of a, a bit, bit of a point of tension was that, oh, these guys are getting all this extra flexibility. And of course, what happened is that for the staff who were the vast minority, maybe 10% of the overall workforce, their flexibility was reined in as a result of it. Mm. And and I guess that raises, you know, one of the things that employers have been dealing with throughout the pandemic is different um, regimes applying to different employees and the need to kind of achieve some form of consistency whilst you can have, you know, a public health order emerge, um, you know, overnight or be announced and then, you, you don't get details for a number of weeks. What do you think the key learnings are for employers that we can take from the pandemic phase into, into the next? I think what we are seeing is uh, employers benefiting from keeping it simple wherever they can, keeping it simple, keeping it consistent. That might mean in some cases you have to accept a degree of risk for um, some employees. Um, often there are, under whatever your approach is on things like workplace vaccinations or working from home, you might have a multitude of different issues that present depending on whether someone's subject to a government direction, whether someone has a particular protected characteristic that might present a, a discrimination risk. Those issues will always be there as a matter of employment law. It is inherently complex and varied. And I think what we're seeing employees do, employers do successfully is to adopt a, where they can, a simple approach to apply it consistently, in some cases to provide for deviation, but to make it clear, simple, to be clear with employees and open with employees about the reasons they're doing things and to use that as a platform to take the organisation forward. 
And John, probably another question for you that's come through from the audience is, um, you know, what does the research say about the holistic benefits of flexible working arrangements or hybrid working arrangements, you know, across work productivity on the one hand, but also the health benefits um, and other kind of benefits for employees as well? Yeah, look, there's definitely a lot of um, positives that have come out of the research, certainly in terms of having that flexibility to work, you know, do your work at a time and, and to a certain extent a place that suits your lifestyle better. So that may enable you to, well, first of all, skipping a couple of commutes a week if you're working hybrid. Uh, there's financial savings there for sure, but also time savings. They enable you to spend more time and do school drop-offs and pickups and spend more time with your family. That's obviously going to be good for your, for your mental health as well. Um, look, what I would say is whatever research we've got at the moment, I think it's still very early days because a lot of the research that's been done has been done during a, pan a pandemic. So quite, quite often, uh, you know, I'll see stories on the news and it's talking about you know, working from home. Oh, it's terrible, you know, because you've got to do homeschooling. Well, that, they're two totally different things. You know, under normal circumstances, working remotely or working from home, schools would normally be open. So that was working from home during a pandemic. So I think a lot of the research we've seen has been done during a pandemic, well, has been done during a pandemic. So I think we'll only really see this in the longer term when those biases have then been removed, those restrictions and other things that were, uh, that were kind of in the mix at the time. And um, just picking up on that point again, the you know, the complexity of juggling the different <laughs> duties that people people have and particularly I think this is an area where the law really needs to catch up with this new kind of normal of working of people working particular hours and Anna uh, mentioned earlier the issue with the award based employees and there will be specific uh, requirements under the awards around the hours during which um, work can be performed at ordinary time versus overtime or where there's penalties and those types of things. Um, Anna, do you see any easy way forward in that space or are we, am I uh, probably correct in thinking we're, we're going to have to continue to navigate um, a, a somewhat rigid and outdated industrial framework whilst we attempt to move into this more flexible way of working? I think you're right. At this point in time, there's no apparent silver, silver bullet. There are, are a lot of different things that employers can consider, like um, in some cases there are award flexibility clauses that can be used. In some cases you could adopt an annualised salary approach, which might help you. You might adopt an enterprise agreement. You might consider really carefully whether employees are award covered. Um, we, we mentioned all of those things that you can do to make sure that people who are covered by these prescriptive industrial instruments are working within um, particular parameters so that they're not triggering a compliance risk. But I think what this does importantly do is give another impetus for reform of this complicated and um, you know historically informed system of industrial awards that we currently have. As you would know, it, it is a system which is subject to review periodically. And there has been a lot of discussion about whether it is fit for purpose and whether it is what we need to take us into the future of the Australian workforce. I think changes that we've seen in the way people work during the pandemic and following it, as John has observed, 
will only add to the, the reasons for rethinking the, the industrial instruments and the minimum terms of employment that underset, uh, that underscore, sorry, uh, these workplace arrangements. Yeah, look, I, I'd like to, I was going to say, just to, just to add to that, I know Anna mentioned the, the right to disconnect, and that's, that's a big global story at the moment, because I know, <clears throat> excuse me, that Portugal, they, they introduced legislation about this, um, but France have had it for a number of years now, and look, it, it's the, well, essentially it means that you can't be contacted outside your normal business hours, but it doesn't necessarily stop workplace flexibility for the individual or for the group because it's only really a restriction around communication. So if you have a nine to five job and you've now got an ability to work in a hybrid or fully remote um, arrangement, you can still, you know, if you're a real early bird and you like starting at 5 a.m. or you like, you know, you, you work better in the evenings and, and, and the, the old nine to five model never really accommodated for that. Like different people, you know, perform better at different times. Um, you, you can still do that. Like, so if you, you know, you like working at 1 a.m., 2 a.m. or whatever, because that's when, when it works best for you. The restriction is only around you contacting other employees, other colleagues. So, for instance, and, and look, I'd say the um, scheduled delivery function, scheduled delivery button on, on Outlook, it will be your best friend for that because you, it, it doesn't necessarily stop your momentum. You can still punch those emails out and click send. It just doesn't get delivered until 9 a.m. the next day. So those restrictions around communications and the right to disconnect do not necessarily impede flexibility for the individual. I think that's a really important point, John, is a lot of this is, um, you know, you take a holistic view and say we're going to embrace flexibility and that will involve people working in different ways that best suit um, the organisation and the employees, but then it's the interaction with, you know, your co-workers, clients, suppliers, etc., cetera, that um, is probably the area where we're going to see the greatest amount of change um, and technology um, undoubtedly has to be our friend in that space. Um, so, John, you work with um, leaders when they are kind of shifting into a, a hybrid world or, um, you know, shaking things up. Is there anything that always surprises you that people get wrong? Well, first of all, I would say I don't think we fully know what right or wrong is yet. We we haven't had that no, here in Australia. So when, when we started our research back in kind of beginning of February this year, we, we were leading the world in this. This was, you know, we were out of lockdown. We were kind of back in the office to a certain extent. And a lot of our restrictions have been removed. Whereas the US and Europe and other parts of the world, they were in winter, hard lockdowns. And, and they were looking to us. And then, of course, you know, the, the Delta variant came along. And it was almost like role reversal. We were at the, we were at the back of the pack because of the, the slow rollout of the vaccine. Um, but look, so, so I don't think, particularly here in Australia, we've not really had that period where, hey, we're going to do it this way and had time to do it and, and see what was right and what was wrong. Uh, and like I said before, there is definitely not one solution for this. It really has to be a best fit for your organization. Look, like, similar to what I say to students, um, you know, in business and management, there's, not, there's never one answer anyway. It's not maths. It's, it's really about 
finding what works best. And, and guess what? Once we've found that, we don't just sit around and, and say, hey, this is it, our job's done. We look to try and improve that like we do with everything else. So look, it's about, and of course, everybody's not going to be happy either. You know, it's, uh, and what I would say is, and getting back to what we said at the beginning, you know, people might be, have this expectation to be able to work from home all the time. And that probably is going to get reined in um, to a certain extent. But one thing I, I can say with, with confidence is that people will have more flexibility in the future than they ever had prior to COVID because they had next to none. So they will definitely have that ability to work from home one day, two days, whatever, whatever it is for their particular organization and team, which is more than they had before. Whether or not they're going to be satisfied with that, if they have three days, they want four days, I don't, I don't know, probably unlikely. Yeah. And uh, interesting, you, you mentioned the three-day, four-day um, thing. There, a question has come through from an audience member um, asking if you know you, there's research around the move from a ten, uh, sorry, a five-day working week to a four-day working week or a nine-day working fortnight. Um, are you seeing anything coming out of the research that would suggest that we're headed in that direction? Yeah, look, I, I have a PhD student and she wrote a paper on the four-day week. This was before COVID and the four-day week was a huge topic in the 1970s and it kind right. of disappeared. Uh, there's a lot of strong arguments then saying that this model that we have is um, is, is not the, um, you know, the, the necessarily the best. This is we're working five days, we're working eight hours per day and there have been lots of tests around it and uh, and the four-day work week can either be two things. So one, it can be a compressed week. So we work, you know, four 10-hour days, if you like. So we work the same number of hours over less days. But it can also mean we just work four regular days and we have a longer weekend. And a lot of research around that will show that actually there's there's not any loss in productivity if we do that. And in some cases, uh, there may even be an, up, an uptick in productivity. But um, look, it, it's definitely become a topic again, and a lot of countries around the world have certainly discussed introducing it. Whether it'll happen is probably anyone's guess, but look, it's um, it's definitely a fascinating topic, and uh, there's actually a, um, a theory called, I think it's called Parkinson's Law, and uh, it suggests that whatever time that we're given, that's how long it will take to do the job. So if we're given 40 hours, well, we'll use 40 hours. But if we're given 30, we'll get the same work done in 30 hours. So maybe that will play into it as well. Sounds a bit like the old adage, ask a busy person and you'll get something done. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I think um, that probably brings us to the end of our, our planned discussion today. Were there any final comments from you, Anna, or, or John? I would just add, Drew, uh, we have obviously focused on a lot of the issues that come up here, necessarily a lot of the complications and and the, um, the concerns that these arrangements present. But as John has noted, I think a lot of our clients are seeing this as a big opportunity. This is a, a big opportunity to change the way we work and to create more productive, happier, healthy workplaces into the future. So it's an exciting thing to observe and be a part of. Yeah, look, I, I would totally agree. I think it's, it, it is a huge opportunity. It's uh, something that we shouldn't necessarily be frightened of. And uh, if, we can, if we can continue to improve our productivity and our output and keep our staff happy, happier than they were before with more flexible lives, look, that's definitely got to be a good thing. So um, 
you know, the point I said before about don't, you know, don't necessarily overthink it. Try and keep it simple. Try it out. Involve everybody. Be transparent in terms of your decision making, and uh, and take it from there. Yeah, and uh, you know, thanks so much for joining us today, John and Anna. I think a couple of the key takeaways that I've I've taken from this discussion is you really have to take a holistic view of all of this. We're we're in a period of massive change, and that presents challenges, but also opportunities. And if you focus on the big picture and then drill down into how it works for individual teams, that's certainly going to put you in the best position as an organisation that you can possibly be in. And then rounding it out and communicating and engaging with your employees so that you're both meeting business objectives um, and talent, um, you know, attraction and retention, that's, that's going to, be the key driver towards becoming an employer of choice in this this new world. And I think, um, you know, as with any kind of change, being happy to try and potentially fail, you know, fail fast, move on and reassess because this is an, an ongoing continuum that we're going to have various factors, whether it's COVID-19 related or technology or who, who knows what else is around the corner. Um, but the ability to adapt and change is something that, you know, people have developed a lot of skills in in recent times and um, that will certainly continue to best position individuals and organisations going forward. So thanks so much for joining us today, uh, John and Anna, always great to, to chat with you. So thanks very much to our audience. Um, we will be back with another webinar in the not too distant future. In the meantime, stay safe. Thank you. Thanks, Drew.